Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. We're talking about the idea of of learning full time um, and sort of where this whole concept comes from and how it plays out today. So we were just talking, you know, just a minute ago with with Norm about how it plays out with you know, kind of the sponsorships for studying yeshiva and so forth. But, you know, we'll talk sort of more broadly just about the the whole idea of full-time learning and whether that is something that should be looked pos- looked at positively or looked at negatively. I, I was mentioning earlier when you were talking about how, like, that really wasn't an idea in Judaism until, right, you read the Torah. The Torah is very clearly talking to people working agriculturally, right? Everything is about you know, your fields and your vineyards and when you're planting and when you're sowing and, right, it's not, it's not assuming that people are learning Torah full time. It's assuming people have an occupation. Um, and, you know, it's not really until the, I mean, the second century, Rabbi Akiva really, um, where even this concept of someone who would not have an occupation sort of enters into Jewish consciousness. Um, you know, Rabbi Akiva, is the first person he, you know, and he who was a shepherd. He had an occupation, and then he kind of ran away to yeshiva and supported himself on nothing for all these years. And there's all these, you know, origin stories of Rabbi Akiva and so forth that kind of praise his uh, his love of Torah and his willingness to sort of sacrifice all, including his marriage and including his parnasa and all of that um, for the sake of learning. But even in his time, it was a, it was a this was very much a chiddush, right? You know, a, a new idea. You think of, you know, often it's it's like one of these interesting tensions in the modern world. The um, my Rosh Yeshiva, the head of my rabbinical school, used to say, you know, if someone comes up to you and you know, someone who's Haredi comes to you and says, like, what gives you a right to be modern Orthodox and like live in the modern world while studying Torah? It's like the, the response is like, what gives you the right to be Haredi? Like, where, where, the, that never was a thing in history. Like, don't what, Haredi like. People lived in the world. That's what they did. They had jobs and they lived in the world. And like, like I, you know, we're doing what everyone did. Like, what gives you the right to be Haredi? Um, now, you know, so I think often we, the ways we think about things, yeah. we assume, oh, it must have, you know, the most quote unquote traditional people are, are doing things a certain way. So that must mean it's the most traditional way that it was done, which is often actually not the case. Um, you know, as they touched on in the episode, you know, Rashi owned a vineyard, Rambam was a doctor, they all had jobs. So um, this idea of kind of full-time study is a, a, an innovation. Um, the idea of it existing at a mass scale is a real innovation uh, in the 20th century that, you know, in the state of Israel and in America, um, which, you know, certainly didn't exist in in the way that it exists today, an assumption of people being able to do it forever. Um, Norm was talking before about how it existed, you know, saying pre-World War One that, you know, someone, when you were getting married, they would say, oh, well, you know, part of the arrangement was I'll, stu- I'll sponsor you to study in yeshiva for X number of years. But even after that, there was an assumption that then you, you know, then you work after that. Um, there wasn't an assumption of people learning full-time long-term. And so, um, you know, I just kind of wanted to bring up that that idea. I know Rabbi Schatz has some, has some texts about it, but also <laughs> in addition to having texts about it, I'm sure has um, 
thoughts about it. So I'll kind of hand it over to uh, Rabbi Shatz to share your thoughts on this topic of full-time learning. Thanks. That was such a formal Passover. Um, yeah, I mean, I have lots of thoughts, but uh, but I think that it's actually, it, the, the conversation starts with how do we define learning full-time, um, right? And, and what does it mean to actually be learning full-time? People could say that that's what I do, or that's what Rabbi Pernick does, either Rabbi Pernick um, do for their jobs, right? That that's, that, that it could be called a job, but that is what we are doing. And I think that when we talk about people who are learning full time, often we think about, as Rabbi Pernick just mentioned, we often think about a world in which those people are not also doing an occupation, where as we know from our Talmud, there are many rabbis who were both learning full-time and also had a full occupation. Um, so it's not the case that it has to be so separate. It's just that there are people in our world today and for the past however many years um, who have decided that studying is all they have to do. And there is basis for that in, in texts that we read all the time. But there's also rabbis who talk about how that's the most terrible thing that you could possibly do because it doesn't give you a full worldview. If you just study Torah all the time, you are not connected to anything that is happening in your world. I texted Rabbi Pernick earlier and I said, should we still have class tonight? And part of that was my recognition of the fact that there's a lot going on outside of this Zoom and in our world and that I'll speak for myself, my head isn't 100% in this class right now. So to, for us to even go beyond Torah and say there is something else happening that gives recognition to the fact that Torah in this moment might not be the most important thing, uh, that there are other things happening in our world that could be seen as more important. And obviously that's not the topic of conversation, and so I'm not going to go go down that road for uh, the moment, but I think that, that, that it's an important distinction to make of what do we mean when we say someone is learning all the time? Uh, is it taking them away from the world or is it just part of what their world is? So in the case of the show, when Rayut is talking to him about the fact that he's taking on another job, he's also talking about getting rid of the part of his life that is studying. He's not talking about doing it in conjunction with. So she sees that as a movement away from what defined him in her eyes. And that's hard. Someone said earlier, oh, it's Karen, maybe Rayut fell in love with the part of him that was from and a religious person, right? So changing who he is to now be this guy who sells copy machines, that's a very different version than the guy who was teaching Talmud and Haftarah trope, you know, six minutes ago. So... I think that there's more of that going on in terms of change of identity than really this struggle with Torah or no Torah. Um, and the other piece I think that's going on in the in the uh, in the show is that there is this element of if you take on this new role, if you if you decide to give up Torah, now she, if they continue on this path of relationship, she becomes kind of the most in control, right? She, she has the money, she has the job. So if he continues learning Torah, 
she, for lack of a better kind of cliche term, wears the pants in the relationship. And I think that she likes that. <laughs> I think that she likes the control. And I think that she likes to be kind of this staunch, what we would say now, like staunch feminist of being the person who can say, no matter my gender, I'm the one who brings home the bacon, you know, that I'm the one who's doing all the work and doing, doing what I need to do to sustain this relationship. You can study Torah. I don't need your help. Um, and that to me, and maybe that's just the female in me, but that to me is part of what's going on in this dynamic of him giving up something to, to now take more care of her, um, though he says it's not about her, but okay. Um, and, you know, and that's, that's a threat to her and to the relationship that she thought that she was in. Um, okay, so as I was talking, I saw there were a few... It's like she brought him into the world and he at first brought her back to, the, to her religious observance roots. Yeah, great. So she kind of is bringing him into her secular business world and he, um, and he is bringing... And cappuccinos. Sorry? I said in cappuccinos and lattes and the difference between those. And, he, I mean, that's, and, yeah. and he was about to ask about a macchiato. And I, I, know, was, yeah. I, was, I also don't know what the difference... Like, what's a macchiato? I don't... I have no it's idea. It's the foamed milk without the uh, steamed milk. It's just foam? There's no milk inside? It's milk foam. Okay, we can talk about it later. Okay, so and then works at Starbucks. I'll ask him. Well, it sounds like Josh has the answer. I just don't. We don't need to talk about it in front of everybody. I understand. Um, okay, numerous people in this country have jobs working for yeshiva or kollel, which jobs? Jobs, I think. Yeah. Are defined as being on call to answer questions about the application of halacha to modern life and technology. Um, yes. I'm not sure. Norm, do you want to say anything about I'm not sure what that was in response to. I mean, I agree with you, but. What is in response to? You wrote a thing in the chat. And I'm. About, about that. It was because uh, these are people who really are just spending their time full time with a very small stipend, largely supported by their wives. But right. they're getting various kinds of welfare. But they have these jobs that the yeshiva gives them. But. You know, there's just not very much demand. The yeshiva is not inundated with phone calls from people asking about these things, but that's their official job description. And they're able to use that as a way of saying that's their right. only employment, even though they're, they're making less than minimum wage. Right. Um, but they qualify for various benefits that are available in the states where they live and learn. Right, mm -hmm. right. Rabbi Klickfeld, those of you who go to Beth Am, no, he's a senior rabbi of our shul, um, that Rabbi Klickfeld often talks about how when he lived in Monroe, um, that there was often conversation, there's a very, very prominent from community right outside of Monroe, um, and that there were always conversations, kind of at it, like, you know, town hall meetings uh, about how the from community was constantly being uh, taken care of by a group of people who were working really hard and they were not working at all. They were just going to yeshiva all the time. So, uh, so there's actually a documentary on Netflix about uh, this particular group of people. Um, right. And there are still those conversations. Exactly. There are still those conversations happening uh, to Norm's point. Um, do you have anything to say, Rabbi Pernish? Me? Sure. Um, 
there's a couple things that I wanted to say. Oh, so I was going to comment on um, a couple of things. So I was going to talk about Colel because um, New Orleans actually had a Colel pre-Katrina. Sue can talk more about that if she, you know, but there's sort of that idea of, um, you know, oh, and okay, I remember the other thing I was going to say. So, you know, there is a thing, I know, like when I lived in Charleston also, there was a, like a conversation about bringing in a Colel. And it's sort of this like idea, I think New Orleans was the same thing of like, let's just bring in a bunch of guys and their wives and set up a Colel and kind of like, just like see what happens from that. Um, just kind of like, we'll just bring in a bunch of people and pay them something, you know, enough to live on in some ways. And like, I mean, in Atlanta, the Atlanta Orthodox community in Toco Hills, which is now very large and successful, um, that was a big part of it. Is like they started a kolel, and from that kolel became you know came day schools and came yeshivas and came like it just sort of allowed for this flourishing. Um, so there is something to be said about kind of just like planting that, and it's you know a thing that in a number of communities they've said, well, we have lots of money, and we want there to be some you know there's not like people who are observant, but we have lots of money. What do we do? Um, one strategy that's often been employed and sometimes successfully is like, let's just pay for, you know, four couples to come down here as a colel and like, just see what happens from there. Um, and again, sometimes like Savannah uh, is a place where, you know, they don't have a very strong Orthodox community, but they have a colel and that's kind of allowed for Orthodox institutions to continue to function because people are, are sort of there connected to the colel. So it's, um, you know, a thing that exists actually. And then the other point I want to make was actually it was um, last week's Parsha, uh, was, at least in, uh, it's, oh, this, oh, curious. Oh, okay. Um, but last week's Parsha, when Jacob is giving his sons the blessings, the blessings of Naphtali and Zavulun are, no, that's wrong. Zavulun and Issachar are flipped. And right, that even though Issachar is older, Zavulun is blessed before him. And the reason that the rabbis give for why those blessings are flipped is Zavulun is described as a merchant who lives by the water. And Issachar is described as, you know, an ox who found rest and enjoyed it. He's kind of settled down and, and liked it. And they said, Issachar is the yeshiva bachar. And Zavulun and Issachar set up this model, which was then, you know, imagined to be continued for all time of the brother who makes the money, who then sponsors the other brother who sits and learns in yeshiva full time. So while I'm saying Rabbi Akiva is the first one to really do that, they'll say, oh, no, it goes back to, you know, Issachar and Zvulun. And Zvulun is given the blessing first, even though Issachar is older, because, um, you know, it's a way of sort of praising the brother who has the money, who's using that money to sponsor Torah learning. Um, so that mindset is something, I think Rashi probably is that. Like, it's something that's very um, strongly there, kind of in rabbinic thought and Talmudic thought of, of, like, this is a model that's good. It's like, some, one, one, you know, one person or some people should be making the money. And then what do you do with that money? You sponsor Torah learning. And so that people can just learn full time. I think Debbie or Steve have a question. It's more of a comment to my family in Australia is very, um, they are Chabad. And so when they get married at a very, very young age, after their three month, three week courtship or whatever it is, um, 
the deal is they go to Israel and they study for six months to a year or longer as they put off really getting any kind of meaningful employment. Um, it's really for quite some time that they really are just studying and not being, you know, producing any kind of income. They're supported by their families or whatever. I don't know. Males and females? Well, the, the males are studying. The females are just, you know, enjoying their time there. Not well, learning how to be wives. Well, they are learning that too, you know, but they've been learning their whole lives how to be wives. Um, and they're getting pregnant and they're having babies. And <laughs> and they have to work, a lot of them. Right. It's sort of one of I think are menial kinds of jobs because somebody has to support the family beyond what they get for welfare. Yeah. Right. So it's one of the, I don't know, possibly ironies of the Haredi educational system is that women get a stronger secular education than men do um, in the yeshiva world because there's an assumption that the men are going to be in yeshiva. And so really they should be learning Talmud and focused just on Talmud. Um, whereas the women all, you know, get higher levels of math and biology and things like that. So some of them, you know, sometimes will become nurses, right? It's not always menial. Sometimes, you know, I mean, not usually things like doctors, but, but nurses and EMTs, um, you know, jobs that can support the family. And so generally, like the local language, whether that's Hebrew or English, depending on Israel or America, you know, that is taught more to the women, you know, they read in Israel, the men are, are, everything's in Yiddish. And so they know Hebrew because their texts are in Hebrew, but they don't know spoken Hebrew, whereas the women usually have better spoken Hebrew and the same in America with English. The women usually have better spoken English because there's an assumption that they're going to be out getting jobs, whereas the men, we actually don't want them to learn English or math or other things because then they're going to be more likely to leave the community for other opportunities, um, which is like a huge issue in the Haredi world. Like, yeah, in the Haredi world, it's like, it's very hard to leave, even if you want to. I mean, and here we're not talking about Haredi. It's like, you know, Yochai is not Haredi. He's, you know, yeshivish, more or less. Um, so it's it's different, but... If he is Haredi, of... he's the best dressed Haredi we've ever met, so... <laughs> no, yeah, he's... Uh, you go to B&H, right? That's where all the Haredi men work. Uh, I had two friends in yeshiva who, who had come from B&H and both came from more Haredi upbringings. And yeah, if you live in New York, all the Haredi men who want a job end up working at B&H. So those um, of us who don't live in New York don't know what you're talking about. B&H is a camera supply oh. store. I mean, it's huge. It's like a national, I mean, it's like one big store, but they do stuff nationally. And it's like, the, that's where everyone works. And there's a minion, you know, daily minion, Shachim and Hamari, electronics megastore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's sort of, it's, it's also a safe place of employment. So, right. For people who want the job, but they don't want to, you know, they're worried that they'll be corrupted. You know, you can work at B&H, which is uh, a Bleamy and, and uh, I forget the H Herschel, I think. Um, but yeah, no, but there, it's, yeah, so there are those places, but, but most of the time, you know, th- it'll be something like that. Or nowadays, Amazon. Nowadays, a lot of men work, um, they have Amazon shop, you know, they sell through Amazon. A joke that they, they refer to Amazon as Amazon, 
food for the nation because it's sort of you can you know, so something like seventy five percent of um, you know when you when you buy on Amazon through like Amazon sellers or something you know however it's like something like seventy five percent of those packages come through Brooklyn um, because it's like a huge huge industry and it's sort of like this is something you can do and you can have your warehouse and then still be learning full time. And then, you know, have the warehouse and, you know, people start off with picking three items and they kind of grow their mini empires. Um, and this way they don't have to be out in the world. They can just be selling from, you know, they have to learn com- basic computer skills. You can be selling, you know, from your home while essentially learning full time. There was an article in the New York Times about it I think, a year ago. Yeah. Um, I'm going to share one story and then I'm going to bring in a source so we can, I guess we can talk about Brooklyn and Amazon forever. Um, but my brother lives in Williamsburg and, um, when there was so much of like the COVID stuff going on, especially in the Haredi community, um, he kind of wanted to know like what's happening. Why is this happening? Why am I surrounded by a bunch of people who are not following any of these rules? Um, and there was a corner liquor store uh, near where he was living at the time. And supposedly the, the guy who worked there most often left his Haredi world behind, but still was very connected in kind of what was going on. Because once you're in that world, you have channels back into that world, even if you, um, even if you leave it and they don't know that you're still connected in those ways. And so my brother would go to the liquor store and ask this guy, like, what are the places that are safest for me to still be going as a grocery shopper? And, you know, to be able to to make sure that he wasn't getting mixed up in something that would be unsafe. And it was just really interesting to be coming from this guy who clearly was working and not part of that world any longer, but still the the roots go deep and he knew how to get that information. And he ended up being kind of like my brother's uh, informant into that world and how to stay safe uh, amongst all the craziness that was happening uh, early on in New York. Um, one of the pieces of text that I, uh, that I kind of, stumbled upon, um, but but new in a different context, is this piece from Kidushin. Would anybody like to see it? Do you want me to show you the text? Yes, I'm getting nods. Okay, I'll share my screen. Um, so I just highlighted it for me, uh, but you can look at the whole text. So this is a text from Kidushin that probably you've heard before, um, but I'm just gonna look at the Gemara piece of it for a second. But so Rabbi Tarfon, uh, is coming with this question to the elders where he says, is study greater or is action greater? And Rabbi, R- Rabbi Tarfon answers and says, action is greater. And Rabbi Akiva says, study is greater. And then everyone answers and says, study is greater, but only if it leads to action. So you've probably heard this before, or you've at least heard the punchline of this before. And one of the things that I really like about this in, in, the context of this conversation is that it's not either or. It's not, 
It's not the initial question that's asked. Is it study or is it action? It's rather that one leads to the other. And so that made me think about the part in our Shema where we talk about how we're supposed to teach our children. And it's not just at a specific time and it's not just our own biological children, but that we're supposed to teach Torah, that that is a part of who we are as Jews. And it doesn't have to be your occupation, but it is something that we're supposed to be engaging in at every moment of our lives, right? Not not in just the most profound ways, but also in just the little moments, right? When you're taking a kid to brush their teeth, there's something that you can share, I'm sure, about taking care of your body that connects back to some kind of Jewish value and therefore Torah. So this this idea of the study of something not just being you're going to study in a kollel all day long and that's that's life for you but if someone does decide that studying torah is first and foremost an importance in their life there are ways in which that study of anything but in this case torah can be put to good use can be put out into the world in a way in which you're doing good with it which probably is where we get the idea of modern day rabbis in the more uh modern of movements right that we're not just studying torah all day for me to learn torah but for us to be able to also pastor and share torah and teach torah because that's the bigger mitzvah than me just gaining knowledge in my own brain. So when I think back to the show, I wonder if Reut is worried that the the occupation that he's chosen doesn't have a connector to the Torah that he was learning. That had he chosen a different occupation, one that was potentially helping people or bringing to light that which he had learned, that maybe she would have been more okay with or on board with the fact that he was going to step away from that life to do something a little bit more uh, hands-on, so to speak. Does that make sense to people? Yeah, okay. So I, I hear what you're saying. I, 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 I'm not gonna say I disagree with it. I think you might be right there, but I, I think that just tachlis, practically, like generally there really is seen it is seen as a dichotomy. You know, people who are, who it's, you know, if you're working, like you, you, we think about what jobs people who are, you know, coming out of learning full-time end up doing. I mean, this was a kind of a classic example. He's working for his uncle. He's doing this thing. You know, I mentioned B&H is one, um, this electronic superstore, which everyone knows. Again, it's closed on Shabbos. It's a safe, right? It's a safe place to work. You know, they're not going to ask you to work on Shabbos. Um, but nursing homes and Amazon, right? There are sort of these jobs that, and like, it's actually like probably one of the biggest Chilol Hashem's out there, you know, sort of desecrations of God's name is sort of the, the Haredi nursing home industry, um, where of buying up nursing homes and then cutting quality of services dramatically to make profits. And um, there's like a huge, like all of the big nursing home chains are Haredi owned basically in America. Um, so this is like, there. unfortunately, I think it w- the world would be much better if there was seen as where Rabbi Schatz is talking about, of sort of, you learn this Torah, you learn these approaches, and now I'm going to work in a field in a way in which I can bring those to life. Um, whereas, unfortunately, it's often very bifurcated 
that it's like you learn the Torah and then we work in a nursing home doing these terrible things. And I mean, nursing homes are great for people who are working in nursing homes, caring for people, not the people trying to make money off of it. Um, and it's really is this like horrible bifurcation of like, oh, when I'm doing Torah, I do Torah. When I'm doing business, I do business. And those things are like totally separate from one another. Yeah. Um, which is pretty, I'm not going to say universal, but very, very widespread. Um, that yeah, you have a I, lot of Haredi people go go to jail for tax fraud and um, things like that. You know, I, so, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. I think that I'm I'm just putting out there that it would be lovely if we could read these texts as like the ideal. As you're yeah. saying, like it'd be so much better if the two could actually go together rather than be so separate, because then it would allow people to do what they love, but also, as you're saying, like not potentially not be as terrible at the jobs that they're actually doing um, because they would be able to bring some of that in. But yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, Stevie. Yeah, I don't know if anyone talked about this earlier because I was at the Hartman thing. Um, but I think one dynamic that's going on in the episode is the sort of expectations that less religious people have of their more religious you know, uh, neighbors or strangers even, but just like... There's a lot of people that's like, I'm not going to do this thing, but I'm glad that it's being done, that there's some Jewish community out there that still behaves that way or whatever. And sort of, right, like it's a relinquishment of responsibility in some way um, that so when when someone in that community sort of doesn't live up to the expectations that I have of them, and I'm not talking about moral expectations, but just like, you know, because like the Bernie Madoffs are a different a different category of uh, of disappointment, but what like, when there's some sort of disappointment of someone religious sort of not not doing what I think a religious person should be doing, right? Then it, it sort of pains me in a way that's I think in in reality very unfair to those people, and that and that as your uh, what's his name Yochai is like, look, I actually have to live this life, so I have to make a living. I have to, I have to earn money, right? Like, right, to, to, from the outside perspective, it's like, oh, you can be this purist and just sit in the academy all day, but, like, he has to actually live there. And I, I think that that plays out in, even even with, like, not the most religious fringe, but even within our own sort of communities that there's these, like, expectations of, like, Someone's going to make minions, so I don't have to go. Type of a dynamic. Yeah. No, I mean, I think. No, I think I think that's you know, very much. No, yeah. I don't know. I agree with what you're saying. Um, that's the other. Yeah, Jeff, are you going to comment? Yeah. No, no, I was thinking. Um, I thought it was funny when Nati meets the new girl, and she's a rich girl, and she she runs a charity thing. He says that's nice. You're helping people. And she looks at him. So, well, you're a doctor. You help people too. And he kind of he was kind of oblivious to that. It had to it made him think. But on the other hand, Yochai is going to sell office supplies. People need office supplies. So it's not like you know. It's just of course he's going to make money doing it. But it's a service too. I mean, you know, it's a need. So I don't know that any of these uh, things are you know without a com- community uh, benefits. Uh, whether or not directly related to his studies. I, I used to teach medical students, but I wasn't in yeshiva, so I wasn't teaching guys who were going to then teach in yeshiva and never make any money. I was teaching students who were going to go out and make money uh, because they're doctors anyhow. But but it's just it's funny that the idea of teaching students 
who will then grow up to teach more students in the on and on who may never actually work. Right. I think that's a strange thing. Yeah, it is a strange thing. You know, well, one thing you were saying before makes it's was making me think of the idea that it's there's so much is about intention that if right there's an idea that you know if you're learning Torah and say I'm tired I'm going to go to sleep you go to sleep but if you say oh I'm I'm tired I'm going to go to I'm going to go to sleep so that I can be rejuvenated to learn in the morning then you get an extra eight hours of you know however long you sleep you get you know eight hours of extra credit for Torah study because you went to sleep with the intention of I'm going to sleep so that I could do you know so I can learn um you know and so I think all of these things right there you know is is just touching on that there's nothing wrong with selling office supplies um, it's just a question of, you know, are you saying I want to be in the world and contributing to the world? Um, I think this touches on what like a number of people were saying, right? Like contributing to the world is a good thing in a whole variety of ways. Um, but it's, it's about your intent, right? Are you saying, oh, I'm going to go into business so I can make a lot of money? Or is it like, oh no, I want to, I want to be contributing. I want to be like helping out in the house. I want to be doing these things. Um, you are very, and even when it comes to Nazi, you know, with Nazi, you could say, oh, he's a doctor, he's helping people. Like, you know, it's not so clear that when he thinks about why he's a doctor, look, doctors in Israel don't make a lot of money. So don't become a doctor in Israel to make money. Um, but he, he doesn't seem to be in it really thinking about um, helping people. It's sort of like, to become a doctor. And even with this idea of, you know, the previous person who had this job got a, you know, was sent to Mount Sinai in New York. It's like, oh, Mount Sinai, right? Because, I mean, Mount Sinai is a good hospital in New York, but also, right, being a doctor in New York means making a whole lot more money than you make as a doctor in Israel. So there's like, there's a lot of, I think a lot of this is about intention. And Lisa's touching on this also. It's about how you conduct business, right? And so much of the Talmud is about that. Um, so really, I think one of the big questions is, you know, do you bifurcate your Torah from your life? And I think often that's something people want to do. Even people who have a job and they say, okay, I have my Torah and like that's one piece. And now aside from that, I have a job, you know, and I'm working for Amazon and, you know, that's, I don't care about the good I'm doing for the world or bad I'm contributing to the world. I'm just, it's a job to make money so I can learn Torah versus the, okay, I'm going to take this learning and, utilize it in some way or just even have it bring intention to the to the work that i'm doing I'm, you know so so much of it is just about about that intention but i think before i call on your dad i think that jeff brought up a really a really good point that that reminds me that there are really there are rabbis in the world that are really bad people and who are studying torah all the time and then there are people who are working as janitors and buildings and are really really good people and are not learning any Torah. And I think that it's it's important for us to remember that, yes, we are talking about Torah, capital T, Torah, you know, out of a book that might be called the Torah or the Talmud or whatever, like we're talking about, um, we're talking about holy, holy texts at this particular moment. But I think that, and I think that Rabbi Parnik brought this up last week, but, but the whole story of like, anything can be seen as Torah because you're learning about, 
a part of the world. So you teaching medical students, right? Some would say, I would say that that too is Torah, that you're teaching medical ethics and you're teaching how to take care of a human. And like, that's one of the biggest mitzvahs that we, that we hold as people is to take care of life and make sure that people, you know, uh, above all, take care of their health and, and make sure they can sustain life. So I, I think that that though this is not the conversation that we're having in terms of the show, I think it is also important for us to think about what does it mean to study, I guess, small t Torah and to, to allow your jobs to be ones where you can see Torah and every ounce of that job, even if it's not actually rooted in holy text. Okay, Rabbi Parnik, Sr. You have to unmute them. I have to stroke I my I have to stroke my beard, my my imaginary now beard for that. <laughs> so a comment and a question. So you know, you also see now with a lot of universities that they're giving credit for life's experiences. You know, you have life life you get life credit for certain experiences that you've gone through in different universities. So that was that was the comment. The question, which I don't know the answer to, you know, I know when the Hasidic movement began, you know, it was the people who had to work, you know, it was like Tevye, you know, if I were a rich man, yeah, I would learn, but I'm not rich. And the Hasidim, the early Hasidim were all workers. They, they had to work. In contrast to the Misnagdim, who were the scholars and presumably they either had money or they were financed and they could learn all day. Okay. They merged because of the Haskalah, because of the enlightenment. And here's the question which I don't know the answer to, how did they, you know, justify that in terms of the discussion we're having now, in terms of the idea of learning, but making way, making room for work or working and making room for learning? I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that. You're saying, how did the Hasidim do that? Uh, right. I mean, what I would say, you know, so correct, um, right? The Hasidim, that was... That was a, a populist Jewish movement. Um, but I was saying, you know, there were the yeshivas where the serious people studied, and then there were the the amcha, the kind of the common folk. And Hasidus, from its get go, was intended to attract the amcha. Um, it was, you know, it, it's stories, it's dancing, it's feel good texts. It's not serious halacha, right? And there was often a, you know, that was one of the back and forths. It's like, you you don't care, you know, you guys don't study halacha. You don't know any real stuff. You only know, you know, these magical stories and things, you know, things like that. I I don't think that was ever like part uh, and parcel of the theology though. I think it was just practically, you know, there were the, it was sort of, what does everyone else do? If, you know, you have the serious scholars who are in yeshiva and are being, um, you know, sponsored and all that. Like, what about the blue collar folks whose in-laws have no money, <laughs> you know, can't sponsor it. And it's like, oh, this is something that you can do and you can, um, you know, you can have this powerful spiritual experience and connection to Judaism while also not having money. Um, but I think, you know, as soon as the opportunities developed to, you know, where people would sponsor you to study in, Hasidic, Hasidic yeshivas, or, or at least for the Rebbe's, you know, the highest level people are saying, okay, well now, you know, and maybe that's part of it, of kind of like the Rebbe, the way, I mean, the way the Rebbe functions in the Hasidic world is like a little, a little Jesus-y, 
um, in that he's sort of like he's mevatel himself to like he right the rebbe like that's the idea the rebbe is someone who has totally he's nullified himself and his own urges to do the urges of to do the will of god that's the role of a rebbe um and so like obviously a rebbe can't be working though though there are rebbe when i was in um borough park for a shabbos um with one of my rebbe one of my rabbis who's um, who's Hasidic, and he was taking me to different tishes, and he said, that, you know, there was one tish we went to, and he said, this, this Rebbe is actually very controversial, because he's a medical ethicist at a hospital, um, and he was appointed, he was the son of a previous Rebbe, if I forget, Vizhnes, I think, um, and they were like, well, this, he can't be the new Rebbe, he's not the Rebbe, but like one of the, but they, you know, they were, there was a debate, and they said, he like, works in a hospital, he has advanced degrees in biology, like, this guy can't be a Rebbe, um, so, I think there's like that desire for purity. And so when it became possible for there to be people who are able to be fully pure and apart from the world in a Hasidic context, it was like, great. But in the early days, other than, you know, the core, the, you know, the, the Besh, the Baal Shem Tov and his dis- disciples, you know, everyone else was, was working and they were sort of doing these things on the side. Other questions? I apologize for saying Rebbe's or Jesus. You don't have to apologize. That was great. I was very proud that you did that. I said the same thing. I have a chabrutu with one of the kabbalah. Um, <laughs> other questions, thoughts? Yeah, Rebecca. So if you have the means, in addition then to sponsoring someone or, or you know, yeshiva or something, is there still uh, a minimum amount of study that's really expected that you yourself should undertake, not just sponsor people? That's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. I Great hope. Question. So there's an idea that you're supposed to make time, make a fixed time for learning, but there's no minimum, you know, as much as usually in Judaism, when we say, when we have fixed things, we like to measure them and say, you know, a kibetza, like an olive size, <laughs> like when it comes an to Torah study. Learning. <laughs> yeah. An olive size of learning. Um, it's really, the idea is that you have fixed daily time but there isn't a particular amount. Look, Maimonides actually does set out a schedule um, of what he says is kind of the ideal. Forget what it is, but it's, you know, six hours of yeah. Torah and of Mishnah and of Halacha, you know, like, and then six hours for working and then, you know, whatever, however much, however he divides it. Um, so Maimonides does have a, a version of that. But in general, it's more about just having a fixed practice of learning without there being. But it's but it's an interesting question because the though I knew that piece of it, I guess I heard your question differently, that if you're going to tell someone you can marry my daughter and I will pay for you to go to yeshiva for, I don't know, three years. And maybe I heard your question wrong, but but what I heard is then do you have to have also gone to yeshiva for that amount of time? Um, and even if that wasn't your question, I'm very interested in what the answer would be because it's interesting to think about how um, you might expect something of, of your child or of your child's you know, uh, spouse husband, uh, to do something that you didn't actually do, but that you are willing to sponsor and willing to 
say this is this is important enough to me now that you that you will do this with my penny and i that i don't maybe i just made up my own question but i definitely don't know the answer no it's sort of like almost your yotze that's the whole zebulun and yisachar thing it's like by sponsoring someone else you get credit as if you did it yourself right so, but no yeah i get that but is it do you have to have had some kind of experience or or any kind of ties to a specific yeshiva to to say like this is what i this is what i want for my son or my son-in-law future son-in-law i guess as long as you're giving money they're generally happy that <laughs> all right classic answer that's not helpful. So it's like it's like do you in order to expect some minimum or some you know some some criteria or performance by someone else do you have to have you know risen to that level yourself to expect that of someone else so in the case of expecting your son or son-in-law to yes to do that huh yeah I agree I totally agree and I think that you know we always in the sermon I gave last Shabbat but we always want our children or our students to do better than we did right that's 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 our goal in life is for them to do better than we did but if you yourself did not do that learning, can you require it or can you say to to the person who is, uh, quote, you know, beneath you, that this is something that you are now requiring? Uh, I'm sure the answer is yes, unfortunately. But um, yeah, that's a great, I, I love that idea. Yeah, Norm, you have a question or a comment or a, a Some people simply have no talent or ability to be productive students on a full-time basis. Yeah. Um, and others have that talent and don't. There's, I know there's a story in Ausubel, I believe, about uh, um, some wealthy guy who decides he's going to learn himself. And so he leaves his business and becomes a full-time student, and he's not any good at it. Plus, since he's not earning any money, he can't be supporting any other yeshiva bookers. And the rabbi finally pulls him aside and says, look, <laughs> this is terrible. Go back to work and making money and donating. We need you to be doing that. It's your job to earn the money yeah. and their job to learn on your behalf because you're not any good. And the fact is some people are not any good at it. Yeah. The last Several years ago, Pardes did a week-long program in Los Angeles, and I was one of the participants. And the single most important thing I learned there was that I'm no longer equipped to be a full-time student. I don't believe that, but but that's I'm glad that you – came to that conclusion. Um, but I don't, I mean, I, I agree with you. I actually have spoken about this a lot in terms of the Zoom world, um, that I have a very hard time learning over Zoom. And if I were in rabbinical school right now, I do not think I would have been as successful of a student to my own standards as I was in school. Um, that there's just something, you know, we all have our own learning differences. And I think that you're right, that there are certain people who are forced, maybe pushed, maybe strongly encouraged into this world that they have no point being in that world because they could be so much more successful or so much more helpful or so much better at some other element that would, as you, as you shared, you, you know, support or hold up that world in a much better way that would be that would be better for them, right? It would be a better situation for both. It'd be a win-win. Um, other thoughts, hands, questions, comments, counter sermons. Yes, Rebecca. Um, I, Leonard and I were just, uh, commenting when, uh, one time when we were in Israel, we went on a tour of a, a location, a place called 
Mafteach, mm-hmm. meaning key. It was maybe on the outskirts of Bnei Brak or something. <clears throat> and it was a job training and placement place that was trying to work with uh, um, the Haredi community and, and a lot of times in secret because it wasn't so socially acceptable for people to get uh, uh, training, let's men. say, to, yeah, men. Uh, so let's say to be a software engineer and, uh, you know, do uh, go off to work instead of studying all the time and doing it in secret. So I, we were just kind of commenting that, you know, more and more it was becoming uh, acceptable, but, um, just, you know, a real conflict for some people to not be able to tell their families, you know, you know, I, I think I should work some of the time instead of studying all the time. No, they told us about one man who had a job work, I guess he went through this program, he had a job working in Tel Aviv, and nobody knew except his wife that he did this, because it was unacceptable in his in his community to have a job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an organization in New York called Crossroads, I was going to say, which is kind of similar. Um, and there was actually a Netflix documentary a couple years ago, which I'm forgetting what it's called. I wish I was, you know. Um... Because one of us? No, one of us was one of us. I mean, one of us talks about it, but I don't. One of us is a great documentary. I think it was one of us. Anyway, but Crossroads is is similar in that it kind of is a secret ish organization that people you know, but it, that helps people find. I mean, mostly people who are kind of trying to transition out of the Haredi world, but not exclusively. Sometimes people just want to find out about things like jobs, and um, they sort of work with people based on what they're looking for kind of ways out. Again, Yocha, you know, I think it, it bears coming back to the fact that, you know, just saying Yocha is not exactly in that boat. He's like in a, a sort of a different, right? He, he's obviously knows Hebrew, right? He's not, he's not Haredi, but it's, the, but there is, there are those similarities there. Um, well, and as you mentioned before, he's not going outside of his own family either, which is, kind of an easy way into that modern world outside of yeshiva without having to be at Amazon, uh, right? Like without having Amazon. to be... Amazon. What? It's just Amazon. Um, and that I think is, <laughs> Debbie liked that. Um, that is easier, right? If you're moving out of kind of the yeshiva learning world, to go into a family business feels safer and is easier. And even if it's, you know, the shmata business and not something like learn it or it's still something that's in the in the family. Um, even in the secular world, it is only recently that educators have come to realize that not everyone is cut out for study. Amen, sister. Yeah, it's true. Um, I was going to say something else. Okay. Anyone else? Uh, okay. Should we close? We can close. Actually, I'll just close with a, a quick story. Um, I don't know if actually anyone here, maybe Sue was there. When I was interviewing in New Orleans, um, when I was flying down to interview in New Orleans, there was like a battery on the plane for someone from my high school with a whole bunch of other people from my high school there coming to New Orleans for a bachelor party. And it was like, just so ridiculous that all these, I, you know, I did not have a good high school experience. Um, and they were just like these 15 guys from my high school, like getting drunk on the fl- on the flight and whatever, and it was like, whatever. It was an experience. Um, but there was one guy who I hated through all of school. 
like could not stand him. And we actually were on a basketball team one year, but together. But other than we like, I just did not like him at all. And we got to talking on the on the flight, and he, you know, we had a nice conversation. He was saying that he's was an electrician now, and he was talking about this touches on Rabbi Barber's point. Like he was like, I just hated school. I could not be sitting down and like, you know. And like, that's right. Like he was obnoxious, but he was obnoxious because he like just needed to be doing things with his hands. And he was like, once I got out of school and could just like get a, you know, a a degree, you know, like a whatever vocational degree and work as an electrician, work with my hands. Like I became a much happier person um, and just all of that. And I was like, oh yeah, that's like a thing, you know, it's um, every person is different. And I think it's like one of these interesting things where Yochai is saying like, no, actually the, you think of me as being like a learner, but like, actually I'm not so much a learner. I've just been doing this. Like I, I actually think I would be better with other things and Rude has to kind of come to terms with that. Well, it is interesting before I call on Karen, it is interesting that he kind of fits a mold and then realizes, Oh wait, this isn't actually who I think I want to be. Or once he's in a relationship, he realizes this version of me that either he decided to be or someone else decided for him that he was going to be is not going to help me in my relationship. And so he's changing. It's just that similar to how Amir falls in love with the thought within like 60 seconds, he, he's just he turns around so fast that it, I think that's hard for Rayut also. And like, who are you then? If you're not actually this guy that I met who loved Torah, are you really this guy who loves selling coffee machines? Right. Who, who are you? What, what is this version of you that I should, I should know? Yeah. Karen. Having nothing to do with Judaism, but I read a book about a son and a father and the son was like allergic to school, could not do school. Father said, I'll let you not go to school if we go to th- three movies a week so you learn about life. Mm. Nice, nice thinking about that. And the guy actually went on eventually to school and became, was in the movie business. But it was an interesting thing about, I cannot go. I cannot be there. So there are kids exactly like that. It's really true. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Denise. Yes, Denise. Last comment. Hi. I finally found a place to watch online without Amazon, so I binge watched oh, nice. it, and I love it. Good. So, um, so I felt like this whole thing with with Yochai exploring, and even like when he discovers cappuccino, and when Ruud is reading Haftarah and he goes and listens outside the window, it was like a few weeks ago. Um, but he never had a chance. You know, we're so, and we, I am so conditioned to kind of, you know, from a feminist perspective of like, you know, this is closed to women and that's closed to women. But I think like a zillion doors have been closed to Yochai too. Just, because of where he happened to be born and grow up. And even when she says, you know, but who are you? And are you, the, he doesn't know. He, he never had a chance to even ask the question, let alone figure it out. Yeah. It's such, it's, it's a very, uh, Rai Pernick mentioned this a little bit earlier that there, there are these very clear boundaries between men and women in the Haredi community and even in the Ashivish community. Uh, and then sometimes they kind of are swapped to what we in the liberal modern world would imagine. And in this case, 
he, as a male, has kind of been programmed to go down a certain path of learning and studying and coming out the other side, maybe a rabbi or maybe just a learned guy who only studies all the time. And she, Rayut, kind of had all of these offers and availabilities of being able to be out in the world and make a name for herself um, before she had a family. And it's interesting that that they, you're completely right in terms of how the those doors have been shut to him and now that they're open or now that he's with somebody who has pushed those boundaries both for herself but also in in their relationship uh, kind of avails him of what is possible for him too, uh, no matter his gender, no matter his original path that he was going down. So I love I love that idea that um, that he now has doors open to him. It's a, that's a very beautiful way of looking at it. Um, do you have anything that you want? I'm pointing at you like you know. Uh, Rabbi Parnik, do you have anything that you want to close with? Um, not particularly. Okay. Um, well, I hope that you all have a, a very safe and quiet evening uh, and rest of your week and that next week we will be back here, hopefully with a better version of this world. Um, and uh, I hope that what you took from this was that there are ways in which we can all be studying Torah, that it doesn't have to just be the one thing that you do in your life that there are some people who make that as a choice, but that there are also opportunities for each one of us to be studying Torah and be learned in Torah and whatever that means to you and whatever your profession actually is. So uh, I gift you with that and hope that you can find other ways to study Torah and bring Torah into your lives. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.